I'm Billy Ray. And I'm Joel. And you're listening to Tales from Wisteria Lane. The podcast where we give a fair view of all things Desperate Housewives. Hi guys, and welcome back to Tales from Wisteria Lane. I'm Joel. I'm Billy Ray. And today we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 7, Colour and Light. Yes. So I will be doing the usual overall, let's break down the episode. And B will be doing the trivia. So have you got anything to start us off? Yes. So let's just dive right in. This was written by Mark Cherry, the one, the only. Oh Oh my God, he's back. Back. And it was directed by David Grossman. The episode title, Colour and Light, comes from the Stephen Sodheim musical, Sunday in the Park with George. Mm -hmm. We have discussed this before. Yep. The episode was originally titled, I Must Be Dreaming. And also due to time constraints, the opening credits were actually cut during this episode. Little fun fact there. And this is the final episode featuring Paige Kennedy as Caleb Applewhite. Is it? Yeah, I don't know why, but different actor after this, apparently. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for your hard work. (laughs) Yeah, it must have been really hard to sit in that cellar. Right. (laughs) So the various titles, translations, we've got the French title, which translates to Sex, Neighbours, and Video. The German (laughs) title is I've Seen the Crime. The Italian title is Photos. The Hungarian title is Colours and Light but also this must be a bad dream. And the Polish title is Light and Colour. <laughs> I prefer Light and Colour. <laughs> That's my favourite one. <laughs> That's all I got. Okay. Yeah. So let's get started then. Previously on Desperate Housewives. Gabby is pregnant thanks to Carlos tampering with her birth control pills. Mm-mm. Carl moved in with Edie across the street from Susan and Brie forced herself to move on sooner than she should have, sleeping with George and possibly regretting it in the process. Finally, Betty and Matthew have someone locked away in their basement, but how are they related to the Melanie Foster incident? So all of the most dramatic elements of the season so far leading up to this episode. Yes. Right. So we move to our opening, and Mary Alice does her usual when she rambles on and starts talking about how important playdates are to mothers. However, Lynette Scarvo is not really granted invitations to playdates, as her children are apparently too manipulative and violent. (laughs) We've seen the way they manipulate other children into doing various things that aren't really necessarily intelligent things to do in the this little sort of montage of clips we get. Manipulate being the operative word. Yes. Uh, Lynette catches her twins fighting with another set of twins and from this a beautiful friendship blossoms and Lynette finally gets her playdate invitation. These other twins seem to actually be the soulmates of Porter and Preston really. Yeah, yeah. Because they were the ones that started the fight with Porter and Preston and Lynette runs over and she's like, I'm so sorry, did my boys hurt you? I just want to say, I don't get what the other mothers are getting so worked up about because... They can say that Porter and Preston are manipulative or a bad influence or whatever you want to say, but your kids are the one that chose to do these things. And they are just being boys, they're just being kids. This is what kids do. Yeah, boys will be boys. Kids get messy and they get into scrapes and things and they throw bricks and... It's called experience. (laughs) Mistakes are experiences. Yeah, because I feel like little girls already know not to jump off of buildings because they can't fly. But little boys are stupid. Little boys are stupid. And little boys will do that thing, but then they'll learn not to do it. Luckily, girls already know not to do it, but little boys will do it. Yeah. That's not Paul and Preston's fault. They just, they're just smart enough to experiment with another kid first. Exactly. And obviously <laughs> they don't get their ADD medication anymore because Lynette can't have it in the house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, Lynette might get to rest. Like, she finally gets her play date. But does she remember that she has two other kids that aren't included in this play date? Who? Penny and Parker. No, I'm just joking. Neither, really. <laughs> like... So you've got Porter and Preston. Yay, they get to go. And I know they probably take most of Lynette's energy, what with them being so um, hyper... Uh, all the time. Boisterous. Um, yes, there we go. That's a that's a better word. But she still does have two other kids, so that doesn't mean you can sit on the sofa with a glass of wine or whatever, love. You still have another two children to focus on. The one time that we see Lynette outside of work, like one of the few times, and we still don't see her with the other housewives. Do they just not hang out anymore? Yeah, she's just sort of there as a parent. But Lynette's the only one that's got young children anymore. Yeah. Like, Gabby's not had her child yet, and Susan and Bree's children are all grown up, so they don't really go to the park yeah, so you think um, they'd go with her? You would think that someone would go with her. Lynette Maybe ne- Tom. Lynette never hangs out with them anymore. She doesn't. She doesn't. I mean, she does, but it's very rare. We don't see her at the poker table anymore. We don't, you know, see her gossiping on the porch because she's too busy dealing with Nina. Right. She's always at work dealing with Nina yeah. or just doing her own thing. Yeah, it's a bit of a shame. We, we're not lacking in Lynette in this season. She's still getting her own consistent storylines that are full of substance. We just don't get to see her interact with the other women as much this season. Yeah. Which I think is a very natural thing, obviously, as someone that's gone back to work and the other women are housewives, or in Susan's case, working from home. But it's just not the same at the moment. Yeah. So we have the 
credits. Title sequence. That's the word. Well, just about. (laughs) Yeah. Mary Alice now talks about cameras and how they capture images of specific points and people in our lives. And we then cut to a shot of Gabby, who's using her first sonogram photo as a coaster for her coffee. This has got to be my least favourite Mary Alice narration so far. Cameras take pictures. (laughs) Well done, Mary Alice. I can see that death has really enlightened you. (laughs) Now now that you're an ethereal being, you know how cameras work. All right, Gandhi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the girls try to convince Gabby to cherish the photo and put it in a frame, but she doesn't really seem to agree or feel very excited by the pregnancy. And the girls quickly change the subject to why they're really there, which is cheering up Susan. Edie, as per usual, is the one to speak the truth and ask why Susan isn't a huge mess right now, as Mike did just publicly dump her. It wasn't even like a subtle dumping, it was very public on that street in your mother's wedding dress, Susan. Like... <laughs> <laughs> um, and Bree seems to think Mike will calm down, but Susan has accepted what she did and realised that maybe somewhere down the line her and Mike can at least be friends. I will have to say, I don't really like what Bree's wearing. I think we said this at the time. What was Bree wearing? It was like the green top and the pink jumper like, wrapped oh. over her shoulders. It and... was because of the colours. They yeah, just, they, they just didn't, didn't work very well. Pink and green. I've said this before and I'll say it again. Do not go well together. Pink and green, they're not a nice combination. They're too sickly. Yeah. Like, what are you, a French fancy? I mean, it could be different if one was a matte colour and one was a pastel, but they were both pastel. Yeah, so it just, it clashed a bit too much. I wasn't a fan of this. Brie is very much an over-the-shoulder jumper kind of woman. She'll, like, drape the arms over her shoulder and then tie the arms around her neck. She's very that. Very that. It's very middle-upper-class conservative woman. Yeah. I don't know why. It's very, I'm about to storm the Capitol building. I love that when Mary Alice is talking about cameras and we get to see this shot of all these photos from the different houses and then again we see that wind photo of Brie and Rex that looks like a painting I don't think it looks like a painting <laughs> it, it just looks like a professional photo like they've, they've stood in front of a backdrop that a photographer's put down and they're just there posing for a photo in like an olden style photo like those family photos that I ended up having to go to in like the early noughties I'm sorry, but any other time I would believe you until I've seen all of the photos next to each other and then that, that one all lasts. Of, all of the other photos are just your casual photos that you take on a camera or whatever. This one, this wedding photo is a professional photo, so it has that elevation to it as opposed to just those photos of, you know, the family day at the beach or whatever. But even Brie and Rex in the photo look like they're painted. They've they probably like, been airbrushed. They look like an oil painting. Was airbrushing a thing when Brie and Rex got married? They were married for about 20 years, so they've been married since about the 80s, I'd say. So was airbrushing a thing in the 80s? They borrowed RuPaul's season one camera. Oh, the Vaseline on the cover. Yeah. (laughs) Anyway, so moving on. Lynette has Norma and Leonard's twins, those are the the twins from the beginning of the episode, over for a play date this time, and Porter and Preston come downstairs because the twins have brought over a boring movie. Tom and Lynette go upstairs with popcorn and take a quick glance on the TV, and Norma's twins claim that it's a video of their mum and dad, and they made it at home together. It turns out to be a very awkward sex tape, and I do mean awkward. Oh, it's awkward. It is real awkward. I get, like, expressing yourself sexually as you get older. You want to, like, branch out and try new things, keep that sex life fresh. But this was just a really uncomfortable thing. <laughs> yeah, it was very unusual. It was unusual. So Lynette quickly jumps in front of the TV, but she's unable to switch it off because the button's stuck. And a quick panic uh, sort of ensues, and Tom searches for the remote, and he eventually finds it, and they do manage to switch it off. Oh, so awkward. So embarrassing. I just read whatever you do, don't tell Norma you saw it. Just don't tell her you saw it. But you have to give the tape back. You can sneak it in there. How? During the next play date, you say, can I use your restroom? And then you walk in. But how do you know where it goes? That's You don't, you just chuck it in the kids' room. Oh, yeah, okay, throw it in the kids' room. Or chuck it in the bedroom. <laughs> That's going to be so weird. That will bring around so many questions. Yeah, but they won't know that Lynette and Tom saw it, and therefore... It's not awkward and we don't need to talk about it. There's nothing wrong with it. You can talk about this sort of stuff openly and freely with people. There is nothing embarrassing about it. But because the kids are turned it on, I think that makes it awkward. Yeah, it kind of um, concerns me that the children were able to get it so easily. But you know what kids are like. They can get hold of things. They're very good at crawling into little places and getting things. <laughs> so is the husband. Oh! <laughs> Besides, you never know how weird they're going to feel about it. So I think it's just best to leave it because you don't know how embarrassed and awkward they're going to feel about it. Yeah. But this is Desperate Housewives. We know they're not going to just leave it. Of course they're not going to leave it. What's the fun in that? No. So Gabby is trying on a gorgeous blue Dolce & Gabbana dress at some shop somewhere and she just has to have it. Some of her model friends are coming into town and she's meeting them and she has to show them that she has not just become some sad suburban housewife. (laughs) She also makes a point of telling Vern, who's the 
store assistant, I'm assuming. I Gabby's love, friend. The I way love they, 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 He's fantastic. And the way that he interacts with Gabby makes it seem like it's more than just like shop assistant and customer. They seem to be very much friends. So she makes a point of telling Vern that Carlos should be out of jail in six months as they've dropped the hate crime charges and now he only has to serve time for the slave labour thing. That's such a white trash thing to say. That's <laughs> such a white trash thing to say. <laughs> <laughs> like six months for slave labour? You get so much more time for like drug charges in America. Like just carrying a... a a certain amount of drugs or whatever on you but slave labor you only get six months and carlos isn't white this isn't realistic right i mean i know he's rich but this is unrealistic yeah carlos is not a, a you know a rich white man in america so i, <laughs> I don't think six months would be very accurate he's a rich latino man they, they lock him up for life this yeah. is so unrealistic <laughs> but, anyway, when walking past the mirror gabby notices how snug the dress is and Vern recommends going up a size and this insults gabby or as i've written here grabby <laughs> as she takes it as him calling her fat and we have a little clip yeah, we'll, should, we, should we play the clip? We'll let them speak for themselves. Yeah. You know, it's a little snug. Yeah, I see that. I, mean, I have the same thing in a zero. Why not go up a size? Because I wear double zero, you twerp. Why are you getting snippy? Because you just called me fat. Honey, you're pregnant. Your body's changing. But I'm only three months pregnant. Women don't show at three months. Some women do. Do with the larger size or not. <sighs> I'm just not going to eat for two days. Oh, okay, you totally deserve to wear Dolce & Gabbana. <laughs> Incredible. Why are you snippy? So I'm a double zero, you twerp. <laughs> so, as we've heard there, Vern reminds her that she is pregnant and her body will change. And Gabby is upset that she's starting to show at only three months and makes the decision to not eat for two days. Mmm, very sensible. <laughs> okay, you totally deserve to wear Dolce & Gabbana. <laughs> I thought you had come to terms with the whole pregnancy thing, Gabby, come on. Yeah, she see, she keeps like flipping back and forth every time she realises that the pregnancy isn't letting her have her way. <laughs> yeah, the whole not eating for two days thing, I'm like, come on girl, you know that's dumb. Of course we know that's dumb. So dumb. But it's it. Desperate Housewives. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Loving Vern. Absolutely. Vern is incredible. He's everyone's gay best friend. Just yeah. like, why are you getting snippy? Why are you getting snippy? <laughs> <laughs> I hope we get more of Vern in the future. Yeah, me too. Uh, Susan is heading over to Mike's and sees Edie and Carl arguing from across the street. Not subtly either. It's very white trash argument. They're like screaming at each other across the street. Like the whole street should be able to hear it. It is really white trash. Yeah. Yeah. Susan is coming over to Mike's to return the Valentine's Day card that he gave back to her that she made for him. If that makes any sort of sense. Um, she, she made it for him, but they're broken up, so he's returned all her stuff. Yeah, they're broken up. That in there. Yeah, they're broken up. Mike's given back a box of Susan's stuff to her, and inside that box was a Valentine's Day card that she made for him. And she's returning it because she just thinks it's a bit tacky to return cards. And if he doesn't want it, then just... Don't give it back and get rid of it. It is a bit tacky, but we'll get there. Yeah. Mike apologises when she gives the card back and coldly just throws it straight into the bin by the front door. And why there's a bin by the front door, I'll never know. For the shot. That like, is literally it. Yeah, nobody has one of those tiny little house bins next to their front door. What have you got to throw away the minute you walk in? <laughs> Susan is clearly trying to be civil and she sort of brushes this all aside. But Mike's obviously not ready to do the same quite yet. She checks with Mike to make sure that this is what he wants as she hopes that they can remain friends in the future. But if he continues to be this cold towards her, then she isn't really sure that's possible. But Mike is categorically not interested with remaining friends with her any longer. And at this moment, we see Edie continue to yell at Carl while he drives off into the sunset. Come on, Susan. Susan does make a, a very brief mention at the very end. You know, at least we're not like that. And, they and then she the turns around and Mike just slams the door in her face. <laughs> Susan is delusional. Mm -hmm. When she, when he goes, I was aware. Yeah, I was just like, oof. Yeah, Mike was not just cold in this scene, inherently cold. But in all fairness, <laughs> I couldn't blame him. And I thought, Susan, really? After what you did, are you surprised that he doesn't want to talk to you yet? Yeah. Come on. Either he'll get over it or he won't get over it. But he won't get over it this quickly, Susan. You're going to have to just back off a little bit. Because the harder you try being friends with him, the less likely he's going to want to remain friends with you. Yeah. Guy needs time. Yeah, so just back away and let things happen naturally. He returned your Valentine's Day card. Yeah, it was a little bit tacky. You should have just thrown it away. But why would you go over and see if he realises he gave back the Valentine's Day card? Of course he realises. <laughs> you just throw it away, Susan. He realised. He was making a point. Yeah, so you just throw it away. Oh, you gave back the Valentine's Day card. That's a shame. I made that in the bin. You don't need to go across the road and be like, I just want to make sure you knew that um, you returned the Valentine's Day card that I made for you. I've never been here before because... I don't have any exes, <laughs> so I've never had to go through this because I hadn't had a boyfriend before I met you. Yeah. What's your take? Have you been through that? No, because the first person that I broke up with completely broke my heart. 
And so instead of returning all of the stuff that they gave me, I threw it in a bonfire or tied it to a firework and set it up on fireworks night with my friends. But I was like 16 years old at the time, so that was very young. And then the like recent breakups, not really recent anymore, but the most recent breakup of mine was fairly amicable. We just sort of went through all of our stuff and kept the bits that were our bits and that was about it. Okay, yeah, luckily I've never had to do the whole, oh, this is my box of things, this is your box of things. Mm. Must be awkward. It is awkward. I guess it depends on how you break up, really. If you break up amicably, then it's just one of those things. It's not a fun thing to ever have to do, but it's certainly not awkward if you break up amicably. If it's a bad breakup, then it's certainly awkward. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to be awkward if you secretly sent away their child. Yeah, because that was a bad breakup. (laughs) So just FYI, guys, for the listeners out there, that is a bad breakup. So don't do that if you want to avoid a bad breakup. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) So... Bree, I love this scene, Bree is blindfolded and being guided by George into an empty house. He removes it and tells Bree that he bought the house and Bree congratulates him. And at this moment, two women come out of a room all peppy and joyful. George introduces them to Bree and his mother and her friend. And Bree seems sort of very overwhelmed at this. And the women go back out into the other room because they can sort of see that Bree's a bit overwhelmed and just give Bree and George a moment. Oh, it's the worst. Once they're gone, George not only asks Bree to move in with him, (laughs) but he also proposes. Uh, Bree's shocked at this, as Rex hasn't even been dead two months, apparently. Before Bree gets a chance to answer, however, George's mum and her friend come out of the room, congratulating them, champagne in hand, like, oh my god, this is amazing, yay! Bree feels forced to say yes, however, when she sees George's mum and her friend staring at her from the other side of the room. And congratulations start, and Bree grabs a glass of champagne and sort of downs it in one. This is the first time we meet George's mum. God, she's as intense as he is. She really is as intense. I get the feeling that she's not as mentally unstable yeah she's a bit more tightly wound yeah george is very much intense in a mentally unstable way i think she's just sort of naturally intense you get you know you meet those people that just have that intensity about them in everything they do i think that's probably george's mum, and i think that george is himself intense in a mentally unstable way one thing that i like about this show and i guess mark cherry is that when he has these situations he likes to mix metaphors with literally what is happening on screen so Brie is completely walking into this situation blind and she's walking into this situation blind literally blindfolded that is so true i've never looked at it like that this show always does that and i thought i thought that was quite cool as a um something to point out from a filmy tv kind of view yeah no that is really cool he is he does that very well Mm. speaking of film and tv stuff do you remember in season one when we mentioned that pink the colour pink, not mm. the singer. She's fabulous. But the colour pink is basically George's colour. And a lot of the time in these scenes, pink represents him. Yeah, because it was pink and there was another colour that was Rex. Orange? Purple. Or purple. Because pink and purple are clashing in that episode. Yeah. But in this one, she's got that nasty pastel pink jumper literally wrapped around her neck. Mm. Which I thought was interesting. Yeah. Almost like his arms almost are around like, her neck. Yeah, like he's, he's sort of choking her into submission. Mm. Almost. That's really interesting. I love how you look at things like that. Yeah. I just watched Shannon like, that outfit's hideous. And you're there like, that jumper is wrapped around her neck and it's pink and George's colour is pink. So that could mean... <laughs> I, I, I could be making it up because that's what you do when you have a film degree. <laughs> yeah, but no, because it, it's, it does make sense. Mm. It does make sense. But then I guess Flat Earthers do think that as well. I could be making it up, but it does make sense. <laughs> Plus, why would Brie want to move out of her stunning house that she's got into this house that, compared to hers, looks like a shed? It is a lot smaller. It is a lot cosier than Especially when you walk right in and you don't get that massive lounge area that she has. Yeah, I guess that's the wage difference between a doctor and a pharmacist, George. Mm-hmm. So, Carl knocks on Susan's door in the middle of the night, telling her that he and Edie have just broken up. Susan invites him in and tells Carl he can sleep in Julie's room. And Susan asks him what happened, but Carl is just too embarrassed to admit it. She tells Carl that he gets her sympathy as she's going for a breakup herself, and she admits to Carl that she's actually started writing a book about her failed relationships, making a point to tell him that he's actually the first three or four chapters. Some time passes, and they're finished off, finishing off the wine, and both of them have not handled it very well. And Susan initially says no more, but Carl promises that if she helps him drink this last bit of the w- wine that's in the bottle, he'll tell her why Edie kicked him out. Apparently... Edie found a photo of Susan that Carl had hidden because he likes to take a look at it every now and again. He then pulls Susan in for a kiss, who laughs, accuses Carl of only kissing her because he's on the rebound, and Susan doesn't take much convincing to actually get back in bed with him. No, not really. No, she jumps straight back into bed with him. Like, just, Carl, leave her alone. He's so sleazy with everything he does. And he's, you can almost applaud it in a way, because he's so calculating in every single thing he says and does, because he knows how Susan will react. He's so smooth, though. The way that he just grabbed the back of her neck and reached in for the kiss, but it didn't come across gross. It was like, oh, 
Right? Slow down. So, <laughs> uh, so, yeah, I mean, the alcohol probably would not have helped, but he knew full well that Susan would do anything to find out why Edie broke up with him because she doesn't like Edie and she likes to get the gossip on Edie. Oh, she was so hoping that Edie had cheated on him for the yeah. gossip. She wanted that gossip. Yeah. She also would have loved it if Edie cheated on Carl because then Carl would have known how it felt. Yeah, so she could have gotten that in there. It would have been like full circle moment for her. So I'm very disappointed in Susan for going back to Carl. But again, are we shocked? This isn't the first time this has happened, is it? No, not at all. Also, no. Susan's gown is gorgeous. Yeah, her dressing gown was really nice. It was very, like, oriental. I, I, I was ready to order. Yeah, I really liked that. Lots of different, like, patterns and stuff, but mm. it all flows together. Yeah. Nice baby pink. Love that. So, Brie is at a session with Dr. Goldfine, telling him about the awful proposal in front of George's mother and her friend, and she tells him that if she'd said no, it would have devastated him. <laughs> and without saying any more, let's just play the clip. We've got another clip here, guys. Yeah, this is what happens. It was just awful. George had a ring. His mother and her friend were there with champagne. If I had said no, it would have devastated him. So you agreed to marry him just to be polite? Well, obviously there's a downside to having good manners. (laughs) Obviously there is. I mean, that is just so Brie. Could not get a more Brie moment. No. Obviously there's a downside to having good manners. Brie to a T. So uh, Brie thinks that a part of her sort of wants to go through with it. She is comfortable with George and they do share similar loves. But she seems very confused with what she actually wants. And Dr. Goldfine reminds Brie that she doesn't feel for George the same way she felt for Rex. Although Brie believes that true love is great, she'd rather just sort of go to the opera at her age and feel comfortable with the person. <laughs> Rex has only been dead for two months, right. Brie. Come on. His body ain't even cold, Brie. Like... And she's already like, oh, I'm just willing to just uh, have some wine and a friend. Like, I get it to a certain extent. She's there and she's like, I've done the true love thing and I ended up heartbroken. But um, doesn't matter what age you are, there will never be a time where you can just be fully satisfied with settling. No, she's so obsessed with being polite and proper. She's willing to marry a man just because she's comfortable with him and they like the same things. But Mm. that does not a relationship make. That's just a friendship. Exactly. And also, you don't want to be with someone that likes the same things as you. No, that's That's who you want to be friends with. Yeah, that's such a boring relationship. You need that person that's not a polar opposite, but has those opposite traits to balance you out. Yeah, otherwise, what are you, you going to learn from it? Like, this What is, experiences are you going to have? This is why I didn't go with someone that was really butcher masculine, because I am so butcher masculine. Exactly. It, it would just be weird. Exactly. <laughs> I, snap, snap, snaps. <laughs> so, so, Norma is here to pick up her kids from the play date with Lynette, and Lynette and Tom take this moment to tell her that one of her personal videos was found by the kids. Smooth. Although they try to reassure her that they are cool with it because they're hip and it's the modern age and, you know, these things happen. They caught it before it was too late. This seems to really embarrass Norma, who drives away crying, leaving Lynette wondering if their playdates will continue. Okay, Norma is a crazy person, Lynette, and you want to stay away from her? I don't know if it's just because the actress was so hamming it up, but she, she really was. She really was, but oh my god, Norma is a crazy person. She runs away. The attitude that I get from it is that she runs away because this isn't really something that Norma's interested in. This is something that Norma's partner is interested in. But to have it found out that you've been doing that when it's not really your interest and you've just sort of gone along with it because it's, you know, a respectful thing to go along with, uh, it's probably quite mortifying for her. Oh, 100%. It's just, I, I don't think in real life you'd ever see someone act this way. You'd see them get really awkward and, like, try and run away and drive as quickly as they can. But it's just the way that she was like, <laughs> Yeah, she was like, she was crying. She was like, I told him this she went <laughs> mad. She snapped. She did snap. She was delivering on a drag race, like, acting challenge, girl. The, this, one of those overacting challenges, she was delivering. This was stage acting. This this doesn't belong in Desperate Housewives. But I bet her first scene was really subdued. And the director was just like, okay, let's just do one, like, for fun. Let's just, like, break the ice and get you all relaxed. And let's just go over the top with it, okay? Everyone just go over the top. And she just... <laughs> <laughs> she takes it there. And she still wasn't doing it, so they put a bunch of fire ants down her bra, and then she just, like, calmed it up. She absolutely did. It was good. Well done, Norma, because I loved that scene. That was fantastic. Oh, I hated it. I really thought it was hilarious. I mean, it didn't really have any sort of place in Desperate Housewives. It just made me cringe. I was it, like, oh! Desperate Housewives has always been quite theatrical, but this was on another level. But this was mental. It was funny, anyway. Julie comes home from wherever Susan said she was in the previous scene, I've forgotten, and walks in on her mum and dad still in bed, sleeping, I will say. You know, she didn't catch them doing it. They were naked, though. Yeah. Under a blanket, but you could tell they were naked. No, you could tell they were naked. Julie freaks out and leaves to find her mum's purse to take some lunch money, and Susan runs down to tell Julie that it's okay, Carl and Edie broke up last night and they weren't doing anything wrong. Mm. Julie doesn't seem to agree, as it hadn't even been 24 hours. 
really, and she storms out. And both Susan and Carl sit down and start complimenting each other on their sex abilities, and Carl seems to think that there's something there again and wants to get back with her, but Susan is not interested, and just sees it as sort of a one-time thing, like friend helping friend and all that. Mm. I mean, I love this for Susan. Like, Carl is finally coming to Susan, looking for a good time, and he's the one who's asking her about things. But Susan's the one that has the power here. Susan's the one that's like, no, I'm good. Yeah, Susan was literally like, I'm not interested in anything with you. This was just a one-time thing. And we love that about a woman. I mean, granted, shouldn't have slept with him less than 24 hours after he broke up with Edie, who is your friend. Friend with a a lowercase f, but still friend. That was a pretty sort of shitty thing to do. Yep. But, power to you, girl. One, one time thing, it's all it needed to be. Yeah, I'm not liking this whole thing for Edie, but I'm loving that Susan had some power here and she just kisses him like, but thank you for the explosion, I needed it. Loving that for you, Susan. Right, Powerful. explosion. That's what she said, she was like, thank, thank you for the explosion. Mwah. Ew, that's a gross word to use. This was a powerful moment for Susan. So Gabby is upset to see that not eating for two days hasn't helped her fit into her dress at all. And no matter how hard she tries, that zip will not go up. So she gets her gardeners to come in and help and they grab a pair of pliers they finally get it done after what looks like an awful lot of effort. And Gabby falls into her chair in relief and we hear a loud rip. <laughs> yeah. Because it's so tight she can't sit and, you know, like bend at her hips. Why are the zips on women's dresses made so difficult? I don't know. I don't know how you women do it. Like, I know you can't really... If you had the zip at the front, it wouldn't look as great. But the zip is so tiny. But the zip is so tiny and... Uh, I mean, I know it's supposed to be hidden, but it's, it just looks so difficult. Have you ever, like, zipped up your mum or anything? Or a friend or anyone? I don't remember my mum ever wearing dresses. Oh, <laughs> well, I think I've had a few friends and my mum's asked me to zip her up at the back before and they're just so hard work. They're hard mm-hmm. work. And they get... I've zipped up friends. I've zipped up friends, I'm sure. And I've also let's <laughs> who are we kidding? I've worn a dress. So <laughs> it's not easy. They get caught like that. Yeah. It's just yeah, it's just hassle. It's just hassle to zip them up. So ladies, I, I'm sorry, but ladies, you are powerful to be wearing these clothes with these difficult zips that you can't yeah. even reach around. Crazy. Yeah. Women's clothing is uncomfortable. Everything you wear is uncomfortable. Bras are uncomfortable, dresses are uncomfortable, heels are uncomfortable. It's all uncomfortable and yeah. you deal with it. Being a lady ain't easy. No, it's not. I appreciate that, ladies. You put so much work in just to look your best self to, like, and feel your best selves. Yeah. That's, that's hard work, but I applaud, I applaud you for that. So, we finally get a Betty scene. It feels like it's been such a long time. Betty and Matthew enter her dungeon with ice cream for Caleb. Before she gives it to him, she wants to have a chat with him about what happened with Melanie. Caleb still isn't ready to talk about her, and Betty cannot let him out until she's positive he won't hurt another girl again. Mm. Caleb believes that Melanie was a bad person who deserves it. She sort of doesn't get what she wants from him. She leaves him in the dungeon and takes his ice cream for good measure. Caleb gets angry, begins pulling on his chains before realising that one of them is actually coming out of the wall. Uh Uh-oh. And so we end the scene with him having this realisation that maybe this is his chance to escape. Yeah, slow but not that slow. Yeah. Interesting scene. I just keep looking at this cellar and wondering what it was meant to have been used for before they moved in anyway. Yeah. Such a weird looking cellar. Maybe like a sex dungeon. I'm wondering if that door was there before they moved in as well. Because that door is so prison-y, sinister, and I'm like, was that there before you moved in? Mm. So it's, um, I don't agree with Betty's methods, but I can appreciate what Betty's trying to do. Yeah, I, I guess, yeah. I can appreciate that she is she is trying to get her son. We don't really know who Caleb is to Betty, do we? I think we can kind of guess we can, that he's we can, her son, at least. Yeah, I can appreciate that she's trying to get her son to, to talk about what happened and admit that he knew it was wrong to start the process of accepting it and learning that he can't do it again. But these methods are not going to help him get there, Betty. Yeah, at least she's trying to better him and make him see what he did was wrong, which we don't have all the facts for. No. But we can assume that Caleb seems to have been involved in this murder scandal thing that's been on the news a lot. (laughs) Yeah, and he also believes that Melanie deserved it because she was a bad person. But we don't know anything about Melanie. So we don't know if she was a bad person or if she was just an innocent person that was in the wrong place at the wrong time. Because this show's being very light on this story so far. It is, really light. Give me more. So, Lynette and Tom are popping around Leonard and Norma's to talk to them about what happened. Lynette's not ready to lose these play dates. After being invited in, they both reassure them that they're fine with it, as long as it doesn't happen again, you know, yada yada yada. Norma and Leonard are so relieved to hear this, because most people wouldn't be so open-minded. Oh god, this conversation that's coming up is so uncomfortable. Yeah, it's really awkward. Leonard starts to make jokes about the poor production and lighting, apparently, that that DVD was some of his earlier work, and he's much better at it all now, and ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. They take Tom and Lynette down to their sort of room, and they talk to them about the process, inviting them to, you know, come and use this room whenever they'd like to. And at this awkward invitation, Tom and Lynette leave. 
never to see them again. No, never. Although I thought it was quite a nice offer, in all fairness. It was a quite quite a nice offer. You know, if you ever want to explore some things, make a video, feel free to use it. It's very clean. It's all set up. Yeah. Like, it's not every day you get an offer like that. No, not at all. Here's a professional studio set up. Yeah, and a ish. professional person to record you. <laughs> you probably just, like, push the play button on the camera and leave. Do you mean the record button? That's what I meant. Yeah. But yeah, most awkward conversation that I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah, it was very uncomfortable. Just looking at Tom and Lynette's reactions were hilarious. I'm starting to see why Norma's a little bit strange. Once you get in front of that camera, you feel like a star. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so, Bree heads over to George's to pick him up for the movie, but George tells Bree that there's been a slight change in plan, and his mother had some friends over who just really want to meet her. George opens the door, and there seems to be some sort of big party that's going on, and George introduces everyone to Bree. And then the applause starts. Oh, God. Like, they all start applauding Bree. Uh, Bree's introduced to George's aunt, uncle, and the guy that does his mum's taxes for some strange reason. Yeah. And discussion quickly moves to Bree and George starting their own little family, but George wants Bree all to himself for a while, at least before they discuss kids, anyway. Uh, Bree's starting to panic, quickly excuses herself before leaving. Champagne's still in her hand. I'd like to point out, she leaves with that champagne glass. Uh, George runs after Brie asking what's wrong, and Brie's concerned that they're rushing into this engagement a bit too quickly. You know, she isn't the only one who thinks so, and even her doctor agrees. This doesn't really sit well with George, who doesn't believe Dr. Goldfine knows him well enough to discuss their relationship. And he tells Brie he doesn't need children, and agrees they should slow things down a bit. You know, not everybody has to get engaged in a marriage straight away. Brie tells George she'll talk to Dr. Goldfine tomorrow about all of this, and, and she leaves. I've got three main points for this. Oh, come on, um, come on. Number one, <laughs> George is becoming more obsessed with Brie, because now he's wearing the golf jumpers. Oh my god, oh! <laughs> did you see the diamond jumper? I did not! Maybe I just tuned them out now, because I hate them so much. <laughs> and she had, the, she had the pink jumper. Mm -hmm. Look at them swapping clothes. Also, that guy that does his mother's taxes, who said, I thought you were gay, or whatever. <laughs> and then he says something like, we need some proof, maybe we'll see a baby down the line, and I'm like, is this the only way that heterosexuals prove that they're straight? By procreation? Like, what if? What about couples that can't have children? Do they no. never prove that they're straight? No, never. Heterosexuality is just bizarre. I don't get why the guy that does his mum's taxes is here. I mean, I mean, we can assume that it's George's friend. Him and George look very similar in age, so I would assume that George and this dude know each other, and that's why he does George's mum's taxes, because he knows George. But... It's just a really odd person to have at this party. Like, here's my mum, here's my aunt, here's the guy that does my mother's taxes. Yeah, bit weird. <laughs> Americans, you're so crazy with your taxes. And my third point was, uh, George kind of seems to be forgetting, I say forgetting in quotation marks though, that Brie has her own family. She has yeah. her own children already. But that's, that's what makes George so terrifying. He knows that. He doesn't care. Because once he gets Brie, he will work to get rid of everybody else that's connected to Brie. I've seen this happen with friends of mine before, where they've got with someone that is manipulative and just wants to cut people out of their lives. And it's sad to see, but that's what they want. And that's what George wants in this situation. He's already got rid of Rex. Yep, he's got rid of Rex. He's, he's got rid of Andrew. He's got rid of Rex and he's got rid of Andrew. Danielle and Brie's friends are the only ones left. And once he gets rid of those, he will then have Brie and be free to start his own family with Brie. Yeah. Because he does not care about Brie's family. Although, Danielle, you're safe because you're never here anyway. Who? <laughs> right? He he probably doesn't even know that she has a daughter. Yeah, he's probably, he has no idea Danielle exists. That's the thing. George's jokes aren't funny. He's going to kill you for that, Danielle. <laughs> it's like he says, I, I want her all to myself for a bit. You don't have her all to yourself. She has friends. She has, she friends. has a daughter. She has a son. Yeah. Ugh. Creepy. Absolutely creepy. So creepy. But that's real, though, about people coming into your life and they try and cut you from the rest of your friends. Because they want you all to themselves. Yeah, they want you to cut those ties. They want you to be ghosting and be ghosted. Yeah. So they break you down, they so make you insecure, and they make you cut everyone out who's out to get they you. They make you believe that the people that love you and know you are the, actually the bad guys in this situation. Hmm. Yeah, that's what he's done with Andrew right now. And if he gets his way, he will start to do it with Bree's friends. Mm. I've also had someone that's been through this. It's sad when you're on the receiving end of that as well. It is. But it's, it's, sad, it's sad when someone you know is going through that. It's a horrible thing to have to witness and know full well that there really isn't much you can do about it, but hope that the person that's involved realises in time. Yep. So, Betty and Matthew are heading down to their dungeon, and Betty is once again complaining about their basement steps and how creaky and unsafe they seem to be, before they notice that the door is open and Caleb is gone. <laughs> the next morning, Betty and Matthew are still searching the neighbourhood for Caleb, with Matthew sneaking into people's back gardens to look there as well, and the next garden they need to look in is Bree's. Betty distracts Bree with meaningless garden questions so that Matthew can sneak into her garden to look. I don't think um, I don't think Betty was anticipating where the conversation was going to go, though. She looked, no, she looked out of her element completely. Completely out of her element. Do you want to um, know my secret? I use horse manure. <laughs> 
uh, Susan just... makes fun of me, but the proof is in the pudding. And her face, like, <laughs> oh, sh- I'm gonna have to like keep this conversation about horse meat going until I see him come out the back. Oh man, <laughs> great, gotta keep talking about horse <laughs> now. <laughs> so, however. It's easily done, obviously, because Brie never talks about this, but there is someone else, even with Andrew away, that lives with Brie, and Danielle is in the garden, and she catches Matthew. Yeah, who is this girl in Brie's garden? Right? Oh my god, someone else has got the the great idea of breaking into Brie's garden just to have a cigarette. Who is she? This is a new character. Danielle is, like, so rebellious. She's there in the back garden, flicking her cigarette... Whatever. Living her life. (laughs) Right? Matthew manages to wriggle out the situation by telling Danielle that he was actually looking for her. And she questions whether he's here to ask her out, bending over and telling Matthew that, because if you do, I'll say yes. Wearing nothing but her underwear and a little see-through night. Is it not a swimsuit? Maybe a swimsuit, like a swimsuit and a see-through like gown. A, yeah, I thought it was like a bikini. Yeah. So, uh, but it could have been her underwear, I don't know. And she's like, because if you do, I'll say yes. And she's uh, like stroking her fat ass. Like... <laughs> I use fat in the, like, the good term, you know, P-H-A-T, not F-A-T. She's, she's like, you came to look for me? Yeah, he was looking for you in the garage. He snuck <laughs> into the garden and then he was trying to sneak into your garage to find you, Danielle. And like looking through the bushes. <laughs> Why does he just knock on the door if he wants to speak to Danielle? Yeah, I'm pretty sure he'd knock on the door, Danielle. Come on. I don't know. Bree's very conservative. Yeah, yeah. So, Bree heads inside and Matthew comes back from the garden, but there's still no sign of Caleb. But Matthew does sort of leave with a smile on his face. So we can assume that he got something out of this. Yeah, it looks like he's got a girlfriend. Yeah. He's going to get some. Or a date, at least. So, apparently, everyone is gardening today because Edie comes over to Susan with big news to share. And Susan is also gardening. Yeah. Her and Carl are back together and Edie thanks Susan for talking to Carl, as it really helped. He came back home with flowers and apologised, and Edie gives Susan the photo Carl kept, and gracefully, I will use the word gracefully here, reminds Susan that even though she is thanking her, she still won. (laughs) Susan no longer has a hold on Carl, and so she can't feel superior that he kept the photo, and he's Edie's now. I thought this was funny, because what I wrote down was, Susan, you make it so hard for Edie to be your friend, you know, because of what she did. Mm. But then because of what Edie says, I wrote, Edie, you make it so hard for Susan to be your friend. Right, because I'm sorry. I mean, Susan obviously didn't do anything good here. (laughs) But the way that Edie was talking to Susan made me really uncomfortable. I win. She was just like, I win. And it's like, Susan didn't ask Carl to keep that photo of her. It's not Susan's fault if Carl was still hung up on her. So it doesn't matter. Like, what's the prize? What's the prize? Troy, the Star Dazzle Award? Either way, <laughs> they're both playing this game. They are playing this game. I don't like this game. And I'm sorry. Like, I know it would be bitchy of me. But if I found myself as Susan in this scenario and Edie came up and was like, I win, I'd turn to Susan and be like, I f***ed Carl last night. And then just walk away because I'm sorry, but I am not letting somebody talk to me like that. Oh, but Susan could have done that, but she didn't need to. No, she didn't. As soon as Edie said, I win, Susan in her head is like, I think you'll find I won. Yeah, I know, but I don't like, I wouldn't like the idea of Edie walking around thinking she won. I need to knock her off that high horse. That's where we're two different people. You can happily know in your mind that actually, even though that person thinks they've won, I know I've won and that's enough. And I can't be like that. I have to be like, I know I've won and everyone else needs to know. I'm not sure if Susan is this evil. Petty. But she's probably thinking... Maybe I'll let her think she's one, let her stew on it, because if it comes out in the future, then it will really bring her down. Oh, probably. <laughs> so she's like, okay, I'll let you think you want for now, because it will just make it worse for you in the future. Yeah, but at the same time, Susan, Edie might be annoying, but you've done way worse to her than she's done to you so far. Yeah, I mean, how many houses of yours has she burnt down? None. Exactly. <laughs> right, so, yeah, at the same time, Edie might be rude to you, but... You are the worst of the two of you at the moment, I'm afraid, girl. Yeah, unfortunately. (laughs) Brie is over at Gabby's fixing her dress, but Brie isn't making it tight enough for her, apparently, and Gabby cannot have these women find out that she's pregnant. Otherwise, she will never hear the end of it, and it will prove to these models that they were right when they said that she'd become just another sad housewife. (laughs) Brie asks Gabby if she thinks she'll like motherhood, but Gabby doesn't believe that she will. She doesn't believe she has the motherhood gene. However, Brie believes that in a few months, she'll be turning to Gabby and saying, I told you so. That was pretty much that scene. I really like that. You, you, you're kind of getting a glimpse of Gabby's backstory that we delve into a bit more later, like stuff with the models and all that. Yeah, and the whole motherhood thing. Mm. Like, Gabby's connection to motherhood yeah. is a very, very big thing. Throughout the whole show, really. Throughout the whole show, really. Um, Gabby's whole personal connection to motherhood in general. The way she so, uses it, the way it changes. Yeah. So um, I actually kind of applaud the show for having it done so early. I mean, maybe some of the larger storylines that 
Gabby ends up having might not have even been considered yet. I don't know um, how far ahead Mark Sherry was already thinking with Desperate Housewives. But it was, it's good to see that they have it sort of ingrained in Gabby so early on. Mm. So that when we do see the change throughout the series, it's a natural change. And it's not like all of a sudden this has happened so that this could happen. It's not very new or fascinating to see how her backstory as a model influences her decision-making nowadays, because mm. you can see that on any show, really. Yeah. But it's more interesting to see the change that happens from going from her model friends to her housewife friends, you know, from the vapid to the slightly more real people. Yeah. That's more interesting, and I think you kind of see that when she talks about her friends, but then when you see her talking to Brie. Yeah. So that's quite nice. So Dr. Goldfine, this is like Dr. Goldfine's first scene alone. <laughs> like... lost. <laughs> So, like, um, I've never had to have a little Dr. Goldfine alone scene before. Normally he's with Brie or Brie and Rex. So, Dr. Goldfine is going for a jog and someone rides past him on a bike before stopping to stretch. And we see that it's George. As Dr. Goldfine jogs past him, he stops, beats him up, and throws him over the bridge that they're on. Like, George does this to Dr. Goldfine, by the way. Not... <laughs> Dr. Goldfine has never seen George. He has no idea what George he looks like. He has no idea what He George couldn't have anticipated like. this. And I'm assuming it's not too hard for George to find a picture of Dr. Goldfine. No, he's... He's well, a businessman. He's you know. like the most recommended psychiatrist in in Fairview. He is! Mary Alice did say that in season one. Yeah. Yeah, so, George <laughs> beats up Dr. Goldfine, throws him over the bridge that they're on, and we hear a little bit of a thud and a scream, and George looks around before getting back on his bike and riding off. Just casually rides away on his bike after killing this man. Right? Also, broad daylight. This happens in broad daylight, like middle of the day, it's not even subtly at night. Hmm. George has more balls than most serial killers. I'll give him that. He has no fear. Like, how many people do you have to kill to become a serial killer? More than one, I guess. Is it I'm not really sure. One? Like, I don't know the science behind it. But George is certainly on his way to it. Rex now Dr. Goldfine. That's because but every venture of his has been successful. Mm-hmm. Whether it was killing Rex, getting Andrew sent away, yep. proposing to Bree and getting Bree. Yeah. So he's probably, like, just full of confidence right now. Oh, yeah. He just sort of knows that the universe, or he sort of feels that the universe is on his side. And now he's killed someone in a not subtle way. Uh, no, not subtle at all. Like, like at with least Rex. with Rex, he got away with it. But now he's killed someone straight up in the middle of the day, got away with it. He's going to be unstoppable. He's getting messy. No, it's mess. It's messy. This is what happens when people get too confident. They get messy. That's, so that's how you get caught, girl. Let's see what happens next. So, but like... <laughs> Another classic example of George getting rid of people that Brie relies upon. The end of the scene, last scene with Brie and George, have Brie saying, I'll talk to Dr. Goldfine tomorrow. Well, also her saying, Dr. Goldfine doesn't think that I should do yeah. this sort of thing. So yeah. it's Dr. Goldfine is against George. George sees him as a massive threat. He can't fully get Brie. All the while, Dr. Goldfine is whispering in her ear. George is the bad angel and Dr. Goldfine is the good at this point. Gotta get rid of him. Yeah. He disrespected, he disrespected me. me. Now I've got to kill him. <laughs> so Gabby is sorting out her flowers. Then the doorbell rings and her friends all scream at each other. They're like, look, look, I've got elbows. Ah! (laughs) They all hug and immediately they know she's pregnant. Immediately. Right. We cut to Brie in her house when the door knocks and it's Gabby asking for Brie's help to get out of her dress now that her friends are gone. Brie asks how the reunion went, but she doesn't really seem to have enjoyed it very much. And she's struggling to figure out why they were friends in the first place. Yeah, because Gabby's changed. Yeah. Brie states that people change, but Gabby feels like it's in fact her that's changed and her friends are exactly the same as they've always been. Brie sends Gabby back home and tells her that she'll be over with her sewing kit soon. And as she goes to leave, she asks Brie to go shopping with her tomorrow to shop for maternity clothes, to which Brie agrees. We get a bit more of it in the future, but Gabby is changed and the girls have changed her. When she first moves here, she's still very much in her... She's that rude, selfish housewife. Yeah, she's vapid. She's that model. she's got that mindset, but they change her. Yeah. So now she's bored of them. She needs more from her friends than these kind of interactions. Yeah. Like, we see, I'm not even sure if we've seen, I don't think even think we've seen this flashback yet. I mean, we get a flashback in the future of all of the housewives and their first moves to the lane and how they meet each other pretty much. And you get that with Gabby, like, the first interaction she has with the women is like, welcome to my home. And she's just like, oh, this, this was this much and it's this famous artist and I got this from Milan and like, it's all this show off model stuff. I was a model and I was better than you kind of thing. So it's, it's the women that have changed Gabby and they've, they've humbled her. Yeah, Gabby's different now. She's yeah. a bit less vapid. They've made her um, realise that there's more substance to being a housewife than this ditzy, sad, lonely woman. Yeah. But I will, I'm sure I've said this before, I will say it again. Gabby and Bree's friendship is the best friendship in the show. I think so. Like, 
the evolution between the two of them and the love that the two have for each other and respect that they have for each other is so incredible to watch. And Marsha and Eva Longoria act so well together. Like they've just got this sort of chemistry there when they're together in a scene. It's so, so well done. Oh yeah, 100%. So I look forward to scenes with just Gabby and Brie more than I look forward to scenes with any other two housewives interacting together. Yeah, when because you, you get to see a lot of development with them. Yeah. And I think Brie is an integral part of Gabby's development as well. Like, all the housewives have helped Gabby develop, but I do think that throughout the series, Brie is an integral part of Gabby's development. 100%. And also vice versa, I think, with Gabby and Brie. So, Gabby heads back home and notices that her fridge is open, and so she closes the door and we see ice cream on the side. She goes upstairs to wash her hands, sees an empty bowl in her walk-in wardrobe, and she goes to grab it with a bit of confusion on her face. And when she turns back round, we see Caleb standing there, all, like, dark... That's not a racist comment, I just mean it's, there's no lighting there, so we just see his silhouette. Yeah, he's um, silhouetted because of the light sources behind him, Thank so you. he just looks like this looming, tall, shadow figure. Yeah. We know, like, um, have you ever seen It Follows? Yeah, I was there. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm talking to the listeners. So, she throws the bowl and screams before running away. However, she doesn't get very far before she falls down the stairs because her dress is just a little bit too tight. Yeah, she doesn't really have much motion there. No. She falls down the stairs. Bravo to the stunt actor. Because it was a good fall. Yeah, it looks really impressive. It did. Caleb stands by her and steps over her before we hear sirens and camera flashes. Taking us back to the very beginning when Mary Alice was talking about cameras. Thank God, otherwise we wouldn't have known what was going on. I know, right? <laughs> very sad scene. And quite creepy. It's a very, the way they shot it was very creepy. Like, I think we all knew it was Caleb because of the ice cream shot at the, pretty much at the beginning. Yeah, they let us know that Caleb likes ice cream. Yeah. They made it quite evident that Caleb likes ice cream. He got very angry earlier in this episode when he didn't get him. Yeah, because so. Gabby's probably thinking that one of her model friends snuck some ice cream upstairs to have a little sneaky bite of it, mm. as a model may do, and then regret. Yeah. But we know that Caleb likes ice cream and Caleb is loose. Yeah. A little bit of dramatic irony. It was. So it was a hard scene to watch, I think. Mm. Mostly because I have such a love for Gabby and I don't want anything bad to happen to her. And even falling down the stairs is just sad for me to watch. <laughs> yeah, but falling down the stairs when pregnant. Right. Uh, if only she had just gone up a size in that dress. <laughs> Finally, we move on to the ending. And Gabby is being taken out of her house on a stretcher before the ambulance takes her away. And before they do that, she asks a favour from Brie. Brie runs into Gabby's house, grabs her sonogram photo and hands it to Gabby who clutches it to her heart and cries. Uh, we also see that Carl still has another photo of Susan, which he's now using as a bookmark. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Mary Alice, you know, has her ending monologue where she's talking about cameras, but it's pretty much the same thing that she spoke about at the beginning. But quite a nice little full circle for Gabby in the episode. Yeah, like not caring about the sonogram and the pregnancy and then having this moment and her taking that last moment before being put in the ambulance to request that sonogram photo be with her. Yeah, when we first see Gabby in this episode, she's just using the picture as... Anything. As a, as a coaster. Yeah. Just saying like to just, a coffee mug It's on. just there, really. And then the minute someone brings it up, she puts it in the drawer. She's like, oh, no, don't don't talk about that. Yeah. And then right at the end... Even she... though you, when we watched that episode, you were calling that out. You were like, oh, I bet she left it there because she wants the women to talk about it. She did. <laughs> she didn't. She left it on the table in plain sight because she wants to talk about it with them. No, she just doesn't but... care. Like, she came home with that sonogram photo and was like, eh. But she's gone from, like, not really caring about it, throwing it in a drawer to clutching it because she's worried that the fall has damaged and potentially killed the baby. Yeah. And unfortunately, guys, whether or not the baby lives, this is one of those moments which really makes you care and feel sad for Gabby. Mm. And it begins a saga of that for the rest of the show, really. If, I was about to swear, I mean, I've already sworn quite a couple of times, but it absolutely does. The thing that I told B when we first started watching Desperate Housewives is that Gabby is my favourite housewife. And it's not because she's vapid, it's not because she's ditzy, it's not because I see a lot of myself in her, she's a fashion model, and I, I so identify with that as as much as I'm not a fashion model. <laughs> um, it's because her storylines get to me every single time. She has the most character development out of any of them, I think. And she really draws the short straw every single time, I think. Mm, no doubt. Sorry, guys, but she's going to go for it. <laughs> she will be going for it. And this, as B says, it starts it rolling. This is the beginning. Someone's taken that cog out of the wheel and it's now going. But... Mentally prepare yourself for it. Yeah, but we'll get there. <laughs> we will, we will. So that was the episode, guys. I hope you enjoyed it. Goodbye. No, <laughs> that was season two, episode seven, Colour and Light. Yeah. Let's move on to our next segment where Joel talks about the best and the worst outfits of the episode. So, Joel, best outfit of the episode. Let's do it. So, best outfit of the episode, I'm giving to Gabby in that blue dress. Although she would have looked a bit nicer if she had just bitten the bullet and gone up a size. <laughs> because it would have just been a little bit more comfortable for her, I think. But it was a very nice dress, and that colour really suits her with it. Goes with her skin tone. The blue. Yeah. Mm. Like the, the blue. 
every colour looks good on Gabby, and it's not fair. I'm just going to say, I didn't like the dress. I know, you said that and <laughs> we watched the episode. The dress had this blue, it has this quality, like it's it wipe it clean with damp cloth. <laughs> It has this beading on the, the stomach area, which wasn't But then the straps the that go over the shoulder, they're sort of like this gold... She looks like she's wearing a handbag. Oh, I'm not I'm not too much a fan of spaghetti straps. I will... <laughs> like, spaghetti straps I'm not really that much of a fan of. Because unless you've got really dainty shoulders, like Gabby, it just, to me, it really emphasises the shoulders and I think makes them look bigger. So I'm not a fan of spaghetti straps. So, Joel, what is the worst outfit in this episode? The worst outfit is going to Brie... With that green top and pink jumper. As much as I love the message behind it. Well pointed out, babe. It was just a gross colour combination. I've called people out for it before. Susan, I'm looking at you because you always wear pink and green. And this time I'm calling you out for it, Brie. There is no excuse for it. No, it was terrible. It really Look was. at the album cover for Joanne. If you want to do two pastels, do blue and pink. Yes, they work very well together. Mm. It looked like you opened a quality street tin and you've just got the worst of the sweets left. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's a brand new quality street tin. You've never opened it yet. And you're like, oh my God, I'm so excited. I'm going to pick out a purple one and a caramel barrel and a strawberry or whatever. And you open it up and you're like, oh my God, where are all the good chocolates? It's, These the, are the worst it's just ones. the strawberry ones. <laughs> the hell? It's the pink one and the green triangle. What? Don't start on the green triangle. The green triangle is fine. It's it's eh. Okay, let's move on. It's not a bad chocolate. It's just a plain chocolate. That's my favourite. <laughs> yeah, I know, because you're plain. <laughs> um, so anyway, what do we say to Brie? We've got off on a massive tangent here. We say this to Brie. Oh, Jesus. Gross. So, um, yeah. Uh, gross, Brie. Gross. Gross. Um, so your segment for best and worst parent. Who do you pick for best, babe? Oh, so, okay. So my award for... Best parent of the episode... This goes to Carl for letting Julie have $20 for lunch money. <laughs> you are scraping the bottom of that barrel for parenting, aren't you? <laughs> I, I am always scraping the barrel for good parenting here. <laughs> that was a reach, baby. I'm giving it to Carl for giving his daughter 20 quid. <laughs> for lunch money. <laughs> so she can eat at lunchtime. <laughs> yeah, which I think is important for humans to do. It's very important for humans to do. <laughs> Okay, okay. So, <laughs> who's your worst? I can't wait to hear your worst now. So, my pick for... Worst parent of the episode. My pick for the worst parent of the episode goes to Gabby. Quite simply, that 48-hour starvation, like, diet thing. Yeah, okay. I just, I... Yeah. Worst parent of the episode goes to Gabby for falling down them stairs. <laughs> yeah, like, you do realise that falling down stairs could kill the baby, right? Um, no, I agree <laughs> with that, you know, two-day fast, probably not the best thing to, to do. It was the dumbest thing that Gabby's done so far. Yeah. And I just thought, girl, I'm trying to have some respect for you here, mm -hmm. and you're just snatching it away from me. Yeah. <laughs> Stop it. Get some help. Okay, so congratulations, Gabby. You got a worst parent award. <laughs> the Razzie award for worst yeah. parent. You can, you can put it next to your best outfit award. <laughs> And all the other best outfit was you've gotten. So, if you join us next week, we'll be doing season two, episode eight, The Sun Won't Set. Oh. Until then, where can people find us on our socials, where every week we do fun posts where you can get to know characters and we do little sneak peeks of what's coming up on next week's episode, etc. Um, so you can find us on Instagram at Boyfriends Review and you can find us on Twitter at BFS Review. You can also email us. Our email address is boyfriendsreview at outlook.com and our artwork is done by our friend Louis. You can find him on Instagram at DocRedMonkDesign where you'll find a link to his Etsy page where he does commissions. So once again, please join us next week. We'll be doing season two, episode eight, The Sun Won't Set and we'll be back in your ear holes, back to talk about what's going on in Wisteria Lane. Thank you for listening. Bye. Goodbye. Goodbye.